So if you want to go ahead and turn to Mark 8, is where we are. Um, we kind of just continue to go through the gospel because the gospel is what Christmas is about. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and la- la- two weeks ago we talked about the feeding of the 5,000. This week is the feeding of the 4,000. You know what the word Bethlehem means? House of bread. So Jesus was born in the house of bread. He is the bread. He's the living bread. We're going to talk about bread today. I'm excited about today. My goodness. All right, so get there and turn. Um, I want to be encouraged together with you today in, in, in Mark 8. Sometimes this is called the neglected miracle. Because you got the 5,000, they're like, well, why do we need the 4,000? We just had the 5,000. Don't we understand what, what happened? And it's the same thing. I mean, weren't there hungry people? And then just, Jesus did a miracle, and he fed them, and everything was good. What else is there to it, right? Oh, there's a lot more. There's a lot more. So here's a bigger question for today. Why did the disciples not believe the people could be fed in the wilderness again? I mean, it just happened, right? And so you're out in the wilderness, and there, there's people that are hungry. And they're like... What's going to, what do we do? What's going to happen? How is this going to happen? Shouldn't they know what Jesus is capable of by now? I mean, they watched him feed the 5,000, right? Isn't that unexpected that they would think that? I mean, kind of like my, my eight-year-old who got a, a remote-control car who climbed the fence with it and, and got onto the roof so that he could ramp it off. Isn't that unexpected? That was this week. It's just sometimes your life, that's unexpected. Who would have known? What's their problem? I mean, good grief, you just saw Jesus do a miracle. Why can't you just remember that? <laughs> yeah, we're nothing like them. Nothing. Here are three points. We'll do it in the kingdom framework, because when Jesus preaches the gospel, he's talking about the kingdom every time. Number one, the kingdom expanded. Number two, the kingdom challenged. And then we're going to see number three, the kingdom process. So Jesus has been traveling through the countryside in these last few chapters, right? Preaching the gospel, doing miracles, casting out demons. Um, he's proclaiming the kingdom of God is near. He's constantly talking about the kingdom. So is it important to have this story recorded by Mark in the gospel? How is it different than the 5,000? So I wanted to give you a quick few differences you can write these down, or, or you can come back and visit this a little bit later. But in the feeding of the 5,000, there were five loaves and two fish. And in the 4,000, there were seven loaves and some small fish. Right? In the feeding of the 5,000, there were 5,000 men, which is to assume that there were women and children. So there's a lot huger crowd. In the feeding of the 4,000, it's 4,000 people. So it's a much smaller crowd. Um, in the 5,000, it was done in one day. In the feeding of the 4,000, it was over three days, okay? In the feeding of the 5,000, there was food from a little boy. And in the feeding of the 4,000, there was food from the disciples. In the feeding of the 5,000, uh, the people were broken into groups, and there were 12 baskets left over. In the feeding of the uh, 4,000, uh, they were not broken into groups, and there were seven baskets left over. In the feeding of the five, the disciples kept the leftovers. In the feeding of the four, it's assumed that the crowd got the leftovers because the disciples went to go get in the boat and they didn't have anything. <laughs> so it was all gone. In the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus had spiritual compassion on the Jewish crowd. He felt compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, if you'll remember. In the feeding of the 4,000, there's a physical compassion that's directly given toward a Gentile crowd. 
Well, they're going to faint if they don't eat. They've, got to, they've come, we're out in the middle of nowhere. There is nowhere to go send them into the city for the food this time. It was a Jewish crowd in the feeding of the 5,000, and it's a Gentile crowd in the feeding of the 4,000. That's a big deal. It's not explicit, but with a little bit of study, you see that Mark's recording puts them in Gentile territory, and we saw last week as Joey preached on the Syrophoenician woman, Gentile, and preached on the deaf man that was healed, Gentile. It's growing. He's, Jesus is going to the nations. It's like a little... It's like what happens in the book of Acts, but it's just kind of he's modeling it and he's starting now. Uh, you remember Romans 1.16? We went through the book of Romans together. It says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, to the Gentile. That's what Jesus is doing. Went to the Jews first and now he's going to the Gentiles. Paul knew that when he wrote that. He knew, he knew Jesus. It's what Jesus is doing, and so those, this is kingdom advancement, the gospel going forward to the nations, to those who were assumed to be outside the kingdom, way outside the kingdom. They're brought in by Jesus, by the king himself. And so you'll notice also that the Gentiles, since they were there three days, and the way Jesus talks to them, that the Gentiles were apparently more open to Jesus and his teaching than the Jewish people were. Because what we read in John that they were there just one day and that they were following. Jesus says, you're following me just so that you can be fed physically. You just want to see the miracles. Whereas he's in the wilderness with the Gentiles and the 4,000, and they simply are there even though there's nothing to eat. And Jesus is like, you've got to go home. You're, gonna, you're not going to be able to make it. We've got to feed you. They're there hanging on everything that he says. It was worth it. These are the words of life. They can taste it. They can see it. They're full of life. They're eating it up. Jesus is taking his saving bread to the Gentiles. And so his heart goes out to them in verse 2. He says, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me for three days and have nothing to eat. And so they're like in this desolate wilderness place again. They're, 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 there's nowhere to even go eat. We talked about the wilderness and how the Israelites were in the wilderness and then Jesus went in the wilderness to be tempted by the, by the enemy, by Satan, and then now he goes to the wilderness. He says, verse 3, and if I send them away hungry to their homes, they'll faint on the way. So the last time this happened, in the feeding of the 5,000, the, dis the disciples responded with, send them away to get food for themselves. Now they say, how can one feed these people with bread here in this place? That's the ESV, right? How can this be done? How? I like that. That's a little better than don't bother trying. It's not possible, right? How? Let's look at the NASB a little bit, though. It's a little bit stricter translation. The NASB says this, Where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? Where, so instead of how can one feed, it's where will anyone be able to find enough bread? I think that's a little clearer. What's Mark doing? He is deliberately showing the slowness of the disciples to believe in who Jesus is, even though he's right in front of them, right? The answer doesn't readily occur to them. Of course, he's standing right in front of them. He is the anyone. How can anyone, who, who can do this? And Jesus, you know, if it were me, I'd be like, me, I'm, I'm standing right in front of you. I can. I did it before. You were here, Right? You'd think that they'd realize, oh, we've been in a situation similar to this before, and Jesus took care of it. I wonder what he'll do this time. That's not their default thought process. 
But before we beat up too much on the disciples, we have to ask ourselves one question. Are we any different? And I love that this is Peter's account through Mark. You have to remember that. Every time you hear a story, you have to remember who's telling it, why they're telling it, who they're telling it to, and why they leave in what they do and what they don't. Yes, it's led to the Holy Spirit. This is Peter. And he's so honest about following Jesus. And our memories are so short. He's just like, yep, we did it again. I guess I'll leave that one in there. We forget God. We forget who he is. We forget what he's done. We forget who we are because of that. This ought to encourage your socks off is what it ought to do. Peter and the disciples forgot. Again. And to know that these men who walked so closely with Jesus were still so slow of heart, so slow to believe, that these disciples had spent Jesus time with Jesus like no other people, that their thoughts are still so stuck in the world and in their cares that, they, that the obvious answer doesn't occur to them. So have you ever found yourself in a situation where you're just, I'm not sure God's going to help this time. I'm not sure what we're going to do. I'm not sure if this, we're going to make it. That happens all the time. Oh, those crazy disciples. We're so different from them. That's sarcasm. I have to point that out. I have friends that don't get sarcasm, and I'm unfortunately really good at it, so I have to, I have to watch that. that could, it means flesh cutting. That's what the word means. So you've got to watch how you use that, right? All right, so Jesus is advancing his kingdom. And even though it's through hard ground and slow hearts, it's through the weak, it's through the fearful, it's through those that no one else would choose. Gentiles? Really? Are you kidding me? What do, what do Gentiles know about a Jewish Savior coming to restore the world? What do they know about that? Why do they even bother? Jesus is moving to unexpected places. And in this miracle, here's what Jesus is saying. I am sufficient for the whole world and all its needs come to me. That's what he's saying. Come to me and eat. Bring your hunger here. Stop taking your hunger anywhere else. I have what you need. Stop looking somewhere else. In fact, the people weren't even able to eat all that he was able to provide, right? There was food left over, seven baskets. And for what I'm reading some places, I'm not going to take too much out of this, the feeding of the 5,000 had small baskets, and the feeding of the 4,000 had these huge baskets. I don't know. It's an interesting thought. Here's the bigger thought. Jesus' ability to provide is greater than your hunger. We can't take that to the bank out of this. Well, I got a big hunger. I'm, I'm hurting here and this. And, mm-hmm. Where are you taking it? I know you do. The human heart has an infinite need, which is why the only place it can be satisfied is in an infinite God. As deep as your need is, is as high as his glory is. So what we've got to, we've got to see that. And oh, how we need the bread. He is the bread of life. He's able to provide more than you're able to need. And in the feeding of the 5,000, when when the 5,000 Jews were fed, there were 12 baskets left over, perhaps, perhaps showing God's full provision for the 12 tribes of Israel because 12 is kind of the number of completeness of the house, the tribes and the, the disciples being 12. 
perhaps with the 4,000 Gentiles and these seven great baskets, perhaps the number seven in Hebrew, which signifies fullness and completeness, is saying that Christ is more than sufficient for the entire world. I don't know. It's just a thought. Number two, the kingdom challenge. So we've got the kingdom advancing. It's going from the Jews to the Gentiles. It's moving into the Syrophoenician woman. It's moving into uh, the, the, the deaf man who was Gentile. It's moving into now a crowd of people starting to expand and multiply, just like the book of Acts. Number two, the kingdom challenge. So we move to verses 11 through 13, and we see immediately that Jesus gets out of the boat. He's challenged by religious people, by the moral, the morality police, right? The moral police, the religious leaders, the scribes, those who are kind of coming after him. The, the condescending voices of self-proclaimed authority. That everything figured out, and he doesn't fit into their plan. And what we learn is a hard heart is a particular problem for a moralistic and a religious people. It's hard for me. I'm really good at being moral. Just because of the way I was, I was raised. It's not my mama's fault. It's our culture. We're taught to put on a face and make sure everything's okay. And it's not that we need to be faking. And it's not that we need to be rude. But we know how to play the game. And we're not convinced it's a game. Because we don't know. And so it's a path to a hard heart that can meet the standards that which you set for yourself. And that's where these guys were. They see Jesus get out of the boat, and so they immediately begin to test him. They argue with him, the ESV says. And the word test there is not an objective test that's designed to discover the merit of something. The word means it's an obstacle. It's a stumbling block to discredit. In other words, they're, they're trying to discredit Jesus. It's the same word that's used when Jesus goes in the wilderness and he's, he is tested by Satan. That's the same word. Kind of get the idea. They're kind of the mouthpieces for the, the enemy right there. In the Gospels, they want to see a sign, right? And so whenever you see that in the Gospels, you say when they demand a sign, whenever that's seen, that this is an attempt to gain a physical proof for what can only be learned by faith and trust. Oh, but prove it! Well, I'm God, and boom, let me blow up some stuff. All right, that's what they wanted. They didn't even want a miracle. Old Testament prophets did miracles. That's not enough. They wanted a direct, authoritative sign from God, like a, like a sign in the sky that says Jesus has divine authority. This, this is the path toward a hard heart that the Pharisees are displaying here. Give me a sign. Prove it. Prove you, you are who you say you are. How in the world can you talk like this? I don't, we don't understand how you can teach like this. We don't understand how you can do these miracles. What you learn is faith, like love, can't, it can't be proven without being destroyed. Does that, does that make sense? Faith can't be proven without being destroyed. It can only be demonstrated through active trust. Here, quick example. So if I, if I were going to try to prove my faithfulness to my wife, here's how I would not ask her to help me do that. Because she doesn't ask me to put a GPS tracking app secretly on my iPhone, right? She doesn't check my web browsing history nightly to make sure that I'm being faithful. She doesn't hire a private investigator to follow me around to make sure so that we can prove that I'm being faithful. Because in the proving, you're destroying it. That would assume unfaithfulness and mechanically try to fix it and bypass the heart of what's the real problem? What's really going on here? Where is the trust? 
and proving himself to the Pharisees, Jesus would be destroying faith. He, he loves faith. It honors him. It glorifies him. It makes much of him. It means that you believe him, that you trust him even when it's hard. It's the essence of true worship. Hebrews 11.1 1 says it like this. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, right? The conviction of things not seen. Look at verse 11, I mean 12. It says Jesus, when he was talking to the Pharisees, he sighed deeply in his spirit. Why do you, why do you think he did that? That doesn't happen a lot in the New Testament. Why do you think that he sighed? He says, why do you seek a sign? No sign will be given. Let's say this. Let's say you watched the SEC championship game last night between Alabama and Georgia. Let's just say you did. I mean, we're in Alabama. That's fair. Let's say you had 50-yard line tickets, and you didn't watch it on TV. You were there on the 50-yard line. Perhaps Jesus sighs deeply for the same reason you would shake your head if you were there right next to someone engrossed on the 50-yard line, engrossed in their phone playing a football video game instead of watching the game in front of them. How would you respond to that? If you're on the 50-yard line, I just did that, and Tua went down, and this one happened, and Jalen hurts, and, and then there's somebody just doing, the, this is, oh, I got this new game. The graphics are amazing on this little four-inch screen. You just shake your head going, what is wrong with you? I mean, if you're a fan of college football at all, you would, die, you would sigh deeply. Jesus is a big fan of his glory. When you sell it short, maybe it's for, here, how about this? Maybe you don't like football. For the same reason that you don't walk to the foot of Mount Everest and then just decide to look at a picture of it instead. Yeah, no, that's pretty good. I like that. That's really good coloring and shadows, right? The Pharisees are asking for a sign when they're standing right in front of the sign maker. I mean, again, it's like the disciples. Here's the part where Jesus, I'd be like, I'm right here. Here. You keep looking other places. <laughs> but he doesn't. And again, don't be too hard on him. We do it a lot. I do it a lot. But Jesus is patient. <laughs> so glad. Number three, the kingdom process. All right, this is my favorite part. All right, when I was studying this week, this is, my, this is where just, I just, oh, it just got me. All right, so starting in verse 14, Jesus has this interesting conversation with the disciples, right, who, who they're getting in the boat, and they're going to the other side, and somehow again, they're unprepared. They've only got one loaf for, for all of them. You know, and when you think loaf, don't think homemade big loaf. You know, this is like one dude brought like one little big loaf. Like it's not, it's like, these are real small things. These aren't large loaves. They're unprepared. And Jesus kind of takes that moment where they're, they're, they're not having bread, and he uses this spiritual bread word picture, right? He starts talking about leaven. And so he says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. It's in verse uh, 15. He says, beware the, the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. 
And so they start talking. They take that spiritual cue for a conversation, and they run right back to physical bread and their lack of it. And so there's interplay between this spiritual and physical bread. It's not what Jesus was talking about. And yeast is, is, tip, is a metaphor, right? It's a word picture uh, that's usually it's for the intentions of the human heart. Usually it has a negative sense most of the times, maybe all but one. Um, and it, and it, it's like unholiness or corruption or danger. It, it's linked to that. And so like Matthew calls the yeast, he says it's the teaching of the Pharisees. And Luke calls the yeast the hypocrisy of the, of the Pharisees. So it, it, it's kind of, it's this attitude of self-reliance. It's this attitude of self-ability to provide for yourself. I've got this figured out. We know all the laws. If you can just keep the rules, if you can just do this, then you will be okay. You will be like us. And so he's like, all right, that's that attitude. This is an attitude that belittles God. It's an attitude that robs him of worship, and ultimately it points to you as the hero. You'll get it done. You'll pull through. You'll white-knuckle it. You can do it. Not Christian. Self-effort. You see the difference in the two? You can live by either one for a certain amount of time. That's why Jesus sighed deeply earlier. He doesn't want the disciples to, to follow the path of a hard heart like the Pharisees. You're trying to figure out why you don't have bread. You're trying to figure out how to get bread. I'm a bread maker. <laughs> I'm in the boat. I'm right here. Jesus doesn't do that. And being worried about not having enough bread, they're possibly heading down that path. And so Jesus cautions them and he warns them. I am the bread of life. I am the sustainer. I am the provider. And they're arguing about having no bread. And he's right in front of them, right? They are blind and they are deaf to God. And they look just like us. So stuck in our own world and cares that we don't run to Christ first. We just argue and complain about how hard it is. And then we stop there. <laughs> I'm speaking about myself. This is so hard. This life is so hard. I don't know if I'm going to make it this week. I don't know how many weeks I've said that. I mean, I'm about to be 45. I've had a good run, I guess. We get overwhelmed. This is where it hit me this week, and it really just applied to my heart. <laughs> to the degree that I sat in a coffee shop and wept. I'll cry every once in a while up here. That's, that's cool, whatever. But sometimes we get overwhelmed in life. And we, we realize we don't have enough bread to survive, like the disciples. Or we don't have enough talent to be accepted in middle school. Or enough athletic prowess to make the team. Or enough intellect to make the cut. Enough charm to be popular, enough experience to get the job, enough beauty to be admired, enough whatever to matter. Wherever it is, wherever you are in life, whether you're 10 or you're 75. And the, the enemy takes that and he pushes that, that thought even further. Not only do you not have enough, you aren't enough. He makes it personal and he gets to the identity. So it's not, only what, it's not only no longer just what you do or what you can't do, it's who you are. It's your essence. You're not enough. And the next thing you know, we're in the garden trying to cover shame with fig leaves. 
And when you get there, the enemy has you on the mat ready for the knockout. Here's a letter I read to a pastor this week that just, it gripped me. Listen to this. It says, Dear Pastor, can I be honest with you? Can I share with you about some of the demons that haunt me? It feels risky to say these sorts of things to my pastor, but here goes. I doubt my love for Jesus sometimes. Sometimes I don't think I really love him at all. I wonder if I'm just playing a game, going through the motions because I enjoy being around Christians. Almost like I'm saying, I love Jesus, but maybe this is just a strategy to have Christian friends. Sometimes I feel, well intent, I feel like a well-intended fraud. This terrifies me. I fear being invisible to people I enjoy, irrelevant to my church and friends, disconnected from my family, and that I have and what I have to offer will be dismissed. I fear that I'm an outsider to things I really want to be a part of. Struggling on, and just we'll call her Jane. And as I read that, it struck me as an amazingly humble, honest, transparent, vulnerable, and brave thing to write. And perhaps something that many of you struggle with. I know that I do and have. This may be the desolate place that you find yourself in. The wilderness where you wake up and go, am I here again? And you realize you don't have enough bread and you're scared that you won't survive. Good news. Jesus comes to the desolate place. He doesn't wait for you to get out of it, for you to figure it out. So this is where you've got to hear the good news of the gospel. Because this mindset will get into all of us. Because of the cross, you can admit it. You can stop hiding and, and holding on to the secret. What secret, Jamie? The one that says, I'm not that self-assured, but I'm much afraid. The one that says, I, I, don't, I do not feel secure. I feel vulnerable. The one that says, you know what? Some of us act real big because we feel small. That some of us seem confident and talk a big game because if we don't, we will feel invisible and irrelevant. And so we go to grab these things and we try to take bread for ourselves. Bread that we've made. Bread that we've brought with us. Bread that the more we eat, the less satisfied and the hungrier we get. What the cross does is it empties these fears of their power. It empties the shame of its sway. When Jesus let himself be stripped naked, spit upon, taunted, rejected, and made to be nothing on the cross, when Jesus, the perfect one who had nothing to be ashamed of, surrendered to the ruthless and the relentless shaming and the condescending brutality unto death. That's what led to our redemption. That's what led to our healing, that he, he covers our shame. He stripped fear and guilt of its power. We just have to come to him. That no longer is our validation in our 401k or our reputation or our career or our athletic ability or our beauty or our intelligence or our achievements or our body type or our religious devotion. 
It's not because you had 12 quiet times in a row. Great. Let that be a response, not something to grab onto for bread. The smile of Jesus is your validation. (laughs) He loves you. He went through all of that. Do do we live like that? I I know that I I, struggle. Oh, and be like the disciples. Point three was really going to be earlier. It was going to be wrestle with it. Wrestle with feeling like you don't have enough bread. Believe that when the talons of not being enough grip your heart. This is how you fight. And I know you're thinking, I'd love to live like that. I'd love that. How does that work in real life, though? That sounds really good. We do what Jesus said in verse 18. Remember, there's no better shield against spiritual apathy and hard-heartedness than to remember. That's why we do it every week. That's why it's important for us to be here together every week, to gather regularly. We must remember, Jesus cautioned us, Remember, the disciples will not figure out the mystery of faith on their own. Jesus didn't break the bread and just make a big pile of food, so you just come to the food. He's like, no, you come to me, and then I'll give you the food. I am the food. I'm not making the food so that you can bypass me. I am the food. The one who does the miracles provides for us like he did for the disciples by breaking a piece and one meal off at a time, by continually coming to him first. When we realize we're not enough, you know what he says? I am. I love the last part of this story. Look at at the patience of Jesus, even in the rebuke of his disciples. Let's start with when Jesus starts talking in verse 17. Why? Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? He's kind of going Old Testament here. Having ears, do you not hear? And do not remember? And then he gets specific. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12? And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets are full How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? See, this is a cliffhanger of the story. You got verse 21. The next thing you know, they're going to Bethsaida, and there's another story. Cliffhanger. And I don't have time to go into it, but it's tied to it. When Jesus ended, this is in verse 21, Jesus ends with that final question. And I don't think it's best to see that as a continuation of the rebuke as much as it is an appeal, an appeal to the disciples. He reminds them of everything. He says, you know, here, remember this. And you remember the, with the 5,000 we did this, and with the 4,000 we did this. And then in verse 21, he gets to the end. He says, after I said that, do you still not understand? Does that sound different? That is... Now that I've reminded you that there were 12 bushels from the Jewish feeding and seven bushels, uh, baskets from the Gentile feeding, do you still not understand that I am the bread of life for the whole world? The patience of Jesus. Let's fall at his feet today. Let's be encouraged. And life beats us up and Jesus has defeated and overcome the world. Let's trust in him. Let's pray together. Let's take communion. This is your first.